0: Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Jack Symes. He's the producer of the popular The Pan Sycast Philosophy Podcast and the editor of the Bloomsbury series, talking about philosophy. He's currently teacher and researcher of philosophy at the University of Liverpool in the UK. And his new book is called Philosophers on Consciousness: Talking About the Mind, Talking About Philosophy, which features a number of prominent contributors some of which we've had on the show before, like Keith Frankish and Massimo Piliucci. But yes, I want to give a big warm welcome to Jack. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much.
1: Um, It's a very kind and generous introduction. Lovely to meet you and you too as well, Leon. I didn't realize you'd had Massimo and Keith on the podcast before. Uh, They're both uh, brilliant and lovely people, aren't they? I'll have to check them out once we're done here.
2: Well, they're gonna be so excited to see this podcast because we're literally about to solve the mystery of consciousness in the next hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So to begin, right? So what's so interesting is that, you know, obviously there's so much contention and, and I mean, so much debate around what consciousness is, whether or not should, it should even be conceived of as a mystery. But the thing that I know Alan and I were talking about and the thing we picked up on is that, I mean, even though even though there are definitely significant differences, there are also some interesting similarities between what seems like the two major theories of materialism and uh, I don't know what you would call it, maybe on the other end, let's sort of the Mysterian version. Version of consciousness right so both in the sense kind of argue that it's an illusion right so the materialist will argue well it's an el- illusion produced by the brain through evolution right it's sort of a synthesis of information that allows us to survive because like we're able to navigate the uh, kind of environment more easily when we're not just bombarded with information right illusion number one and then you have panpsychist idealism which says well no this is all sort of an illusion in the sense of maya right the hindu term that we are all kind of just these manifestations of pure consciousness and essentially in the kind of old uh Bill Hicks kind of uh, saying, you know, we're all one consciousness experiencing experiencing itself subjectively, right? So, I mean, do you think that it's kind of interesting that it's so contentious, even though there are such similarities between some of these views? Mm.
1: You're right into the heart of it, yeah. there, aren't we, Like, no messing around. Let's get to the, Let's it. Let's get into the it. heart of the matter. <laughs> um. Yeah. I. I suppose the first thing to say is that they differ radically on their starting points, right? So Keith's view and perhaps uh, Massimo's view and the illusionist's view in general, they start from the world and, and work inwards. They say, I am, therefore I think. The world is clearly physical. How does this conscious thing fit in with, the, with physical science and the physical world as we know it? And then the panpsychists like Goff and Strauss and, and Miri al-Bahari they start with what they consider to be the unshakable truth, the undoubtable thing that is the fact that they're conscious, the fact that they're um, the one thing they can't doubt is that they are mind, and then they build from there. So I think a lot of the debate stems from, from that point forwards, that w- what you take to be epistemically superior, what do you build your philosophy from? So it raises loads of questions for epistemology, and, and, and then it obviously flourishes in philosophy of mind what are the similarities so apologies i i've you were, there were so many yeah. ideas there. What yeah, you so, give me right. a so, quick sense yeah. of what the main
2: similarity so, is? So when we're talking about dualism, right, we obviously have a dichotomy between, you know, kind of consciousness and matter, right? But it seems like from now, I, I mean, look, I can't say for sure. This is not sort of my area of expertise, but it does seem like the materialists are more so moving into the illusionist uh, conception of consciousness, just meaning essentially that consciousness isn't exactly what we think it is. And yeah. I don't and I disagree that they deny it, by the way. I don't think that that's exactly what they're doing, as obviously we've had uh-huh. Keith Frankish multiple times. And he's vividly sort of asserted and explained to us why he's not denying consciousness, right? So you have one conception that says, well, consciousness is an illusion. And then you have the panpsychist idealism conception, which is pretty much Hinduist philosophy, kind of in a modern sense, right? Where, again, going back to this Bill Hicks idea of like, we're all one consciousness experience, experiencing itself subjective, right? So in some sense, consciousness is an illusion because there's a division that we see kind of like, you know, uh, in the so-called material world, but these material kind of, uh, I guess, separations or these material illusions are literally just like uh, barriers created by, uh, I guess, the, the world or the universal consciousness, right? These are sort of these uh, emergent properties that don't really exist at the fundamental level. So that's what I see as a similarity between what I think are the two seemingly main views. I mean, I could be wrong. Yeah, no,
1: I think you're, you're spot on there in, in the spirit of it. So the illusionists accept that boring old physicalism that just says these brain states correlate with these experiences isn't going to work. They right. need a what is a radical view of consciousness, right? They say, as you put, I don't think that the illusionists deny the existence of consciousness as well. Well, Keith would certainly be really unhappy if I said otherwise. But, you know, when Strawson says, yeah, you, you do deny what we typically think to be consciousness before we go out and engage in philosophy. I think Keith has to accept that. He says consciousness isn't what you think it is. We are, the vast majority of us, in the illusion of the cartesian theater we think that there's this sort of duality there as you described as dualism a moment ago and they that's something that they do deny keith does deny an an inner world of qualities and phenomenal experiences which are somehow non-physical he says they're a physical trick of the brain but no i I agree with you what illusionism and panpsychism i think can be uh, commended for is the fact they recognize the force of the problem and they realize they need a, a big
0: solution to it.
2: Yeah, So, you're all well, right. so it,
0: it's my understanding that the illusionists um, believe that somehow non-conscious matter comes together in order to produce um, consciousness in the sense that it's like a sort of a radical emergence, right? And yeah. that what we uh, take to be uh, consciousness, this this big mysterious thing if we could call it that uh he he made keith and, and massimo believe that that's sort of a. it's it's not what we th- we don't think that it's this grand beautiful uh experience of the world it might just be, well, by the way you know,
2: just it's keith and dan so massimo has a totally different well massimo
0: has a sort of biological perspective but he doesn't necessarily yeah. subscribe to
2: panpsychism no but he's definitely not an illusionist FYI yeah, the hundred. Oh my God. Massimo would be so If anybody ever quoted him story, as an illusionist, I think he'd be really angry. <laughs> well,
1: so even worse, then, I, I think I described him as a, a boring old physicalist. Moment ago. You probably did. Massimo, if, if you, if you if you're watching, I, I take it back almost immediately. I wouldn't want to cause him. Friends. He's one of the nicest people in, in the world. Massimo for the Even You can have the
0: silliest idea that's ever been held. And I wouldn't dare say it to him. Well, then would you mind if maybe we did this instead to sort of, so how about, because I know you sort of jumped into it at the very beginning, but maybe sure. for our audience, right? Sure. They're hearing this maybe for the first time, right? Like the illusionist view, could we maybe uh, uh, highlight what is the illusionist view? And then maybe we can yeah. get into mm-hmm. the other one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in the book, Keith Frankish begins his chapter. So he writes an original essay for the book. On Philosophers Unconsciousness, in, in which he says, Imagine you're walking down a high street and some old lady comes up to you with a box and you give her a coin, you look inside the box into the little peephole and there's nothing in there. She, then she says something kooky and clicks her fingers, and then you look inside the box again and there's a beetle in there. He says, You've got three possible explanations. Either one, something actually magic is happening, like something non physical. She's, she's, she's that wonderful, she, she's, uh, she, she's outside of what you thought the natural world was capable of or included. Second of all, you might have a scientific explanation for how the uh, beetle came about to be in the box. Thirdly, you might think that it's just an illusion that beetle was in the box. So you might consider the panpsychists and the dualists to fit into that first category. They're those that say yeah, there's this non-physical special property which you didn't think was there, but it actually is. Physical science can't capture it. You've then got the, the scientific view, which would say, no, you could capture it in, in the form of an equation. You, could, you can explain that subjective seemingness in, t- in purely physical, uh, with purely physical properties just by studying the brain more. And I think Massimo would favor like an evolutionary neuroscientific view like that. Thirdly, you might think that it's just an illusion, like you could just explain why it is you think there's a beetle in the box, how it is that the illusion comes about, including the thing that you say when you go, wow, like explaining this is really difficult, but this seems like a big problem. So very quickly, the reasons you might reject those views is that let's just take the dualist, first of all, for the first option. It's really difficult to see how non-physical souls or minds can interact with Physical brains, say the critic. Also, you've got the problem of mapping them out. It seems like we've got a purely physical explanation of the brain. As Philip Goff points out, you'd expect when you scan a brain for all this weird and wacky Mm -hmm. stuff to be going on, lighting up in all kinds of different areas without physical explanations, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Second of all, it doesn't seem like you can capture the, the, the feeling of fearing to get on a flight, the pain in your feet after you've been... Up dancing all night long, or the heavy hangover that you feel on a, on a Sunday morning. You can't capture those feelings in equations. It doesn't feel like science can explain that phenomenal, seemingly phenomenal aspect. Now, finally, the illusionist, right, is just saying, well, there's just a trick at play here. It's just nothing more than a physical trick of of the brain. Yes, you see the beetle. Yes, you taste marmite. Yes, your headaches, but it's not what you think it is. You're being misled. So I think that perhaps gives us a, a, a bit of, a bit of color
0: to attach these uh, colorful theories to. Mm. I mean, why do panpsychists sort of reject that? Not every panpsychist is terribly rejecting it, right? Like Philip Goff actually doesn't necessarily have a problem with, mm. uh, illusionism in the sense that, uh, he, he calls it a simple, elegant solution. Um, yeah. but, but why would most panpsychists have a problem with that sort of conception of consciousness?
1: I like how you, you give that quote from, from Philip Goff, who does think it is a simple, elegant solution. He obviously gets on with Keith very well, and he's quite open-minded when it comes to it. People like Strawson, and Strawson's probably the person we're alluding to here, Scanlon Strawson said that illusionism is the silliest idea anyone's ever held. At least, uh, with some counterexamples, like people say that nothing exists, people say that everything's subjective, but he thinks that it's the most silly claim someone's made, at least by an accredited theorist who wasn't drunk or stoned or something like that. So why does he think that? Well, because that's, that conscious experience, as we mentioned a moment ago, to go back to Descartes, I can doubt everything that's in my, all of my senses. What I can't doubt is the fact that I'm a thinking thing. The one unshakable truth is that I am a conscious mind and I have like this inner access to to this to this world, which is undeniable. And I should build up from there. So if you were to deny that one unshakable truth, that that might seem to some to be the silliest thing that, that one can do, like to deny the fact that you are conscious and that's you just being, being uh, misled into thinking that you are. Does that answer your, your question there,
0: Alan? No, of course, because I, I think it's important to sort of distill the differences um in these different conceptions of consciousness at least for for the audience of course i, I do like that we jumped in right away trying to already put panpsychists mm-hmm. versus you know materialists but uh no it just this is more of just to sort of talk it through to sort of uh
2: Distill it. Yeah, no, but I hear yeah. You. But Wait, but so, but then hold on. So isn't it a little bit then absurd to say that, okay, it's the illusionists who deny consciousness in the way we see it, because it's not just the illusionists in some way the panpsychists do the same exact thing, right? Because again, if there's an emergent consciousness of some sort, right, from, you know, th- again, this universal consciousness that none of us can really sense outside of like, you know, this perceivable, maybe not even perceivable, this sort of thought experiment that we think about in, uh in uh, the cogni cognitive chamber, right, which I hope we get into, uh, uh- Right. So but like if that's the point, right? Isn't the aren't we to say that in some sense the panpsychists are also arguing for a form of illusionism as well? They're pretty much saying that yeah. I mean, it's really just one universal consciousness, but in some way it's in somehow divided itself and you know, it's chosen in, again I don't know how this is a really difficult thing for me to even grasp that there's this universal consciousness and of course it doesn't seem like this is philip goff's just to be fair his perspective but uh but it's like this this consciousness somehow kind of sort of what's the word it gave birth to these other multiple forms of consciousness but again really fundamentally right it's it's all brahman right it's all sort of this this hindu kind of ultimate reality that essentially this is all kind of an illusion so it's sort of interesting mm-hmm. to me that you know you have a you have a beef with the illusionist but yet in some way you guys are, are arguing for a form of illusionism yourself even if let's say it's a more of a material illusionism uh more on the panpsychic side if it's more of an material form of illusionism because let's say it's these tiny bits of atoms which are conscious and they're somehow combining to form you know broader forms of conscious but that's still kind of an illusion is it not Mm -hmm. because this this is still a fundamental reality that we don't see in the everyday world and you could even argue that because we don't perceive this fundamental reality the reality that we are getting is actually then an illusion because i don't see alan as a bunch of atoms in combination to create alan (laughs) that's the way to look at it (laughs) right 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 alan is just adams he's adams aka alan
1: (laughs) cool yeah No, that's really interesting there's loads of there's loads of interesting ideas that the first thing i want to pull up on is that so the the book philosophers on consciousness involves like it starts off with what's the nature of conscious experience what is it like to be someone what's the problem here then we get into um, like Massimo's view and Pat Churchland's view, where they try and deflate the problem. No, the, it's not as big of a problem as we think it is the question of how the brain can produce subjective experience. Then we get onto the illusionists, Frankish and Dennett. And then we move into panpsychism. Uh, that's what we're doing here, right? So we go Strawson, Gough, Miri Al Bahari. And I co write that final chapter with Miri Albahari. And so when you say, you guys are like, uh, pretty upset with the illusionists aren't you doing a similar thing aren't you denying the existence of perhaps the brain right by saying that it's all just mental stuff the first thing to say on that is that i'm not wedded to any particular view in philosophy of mind apart from boring old physicalism i'm quite happy and uh, i consider myself philosophically homeless on the topic and more of like a more of a guide to it rather than like a someone saying here's the the correct view. So the final chapter is very much, here's this big idea to be provocative and go away and think about and bring us towards the end of that journey. With that said, I do think it's an elegant and promising solution to the the problem of consciousness. So I'm happy to to take the question. The panpsychists, as you rightly point out, Leon, the materialist panpsychists like Strawson and, and Goff, They don't deny the existence of physical brains. You might be a micropsychist or a cosmopsychist. So a micro... First of all, panpsychism says that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the cosmos. It's everywhere. And you can take that two ways. You can have a big cosmic mind, and it breaks down into little minds. Or you can start from the ground up, and you can have... like this fundamental primitive rudimentary type of consciousness a part of every fundamental physical thing in the world and when they come together in the right way brain-wise they produce like macro unified conscious experiences so i think the likes of garth and strawson can eat their cake and have it too when it comes to deny like they don't deny the brain they don't deny consciousness so if you're worried about denying one i don't think that can be levered against either of them however yeah, like <laughs> the final chapter focuses on a form of idealist panpsychism. And as you say, for the Hindus, everything is Brahman. Like everything is this one unified conscious mind. And, and, and there is no physical stuff. There's no material stuff. It's all just more mind stuff. So the, wall, the whole world is comprised of just fundamental consciousness, ideas and perspectives within that ocean of consciousness. So, yeah, that's very Eastern. The the likes of Schopenhauer, the likes of uh, Barclay would embrace it. You know, there's almost two billion Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists, et cetera, on the earth who would wholeheartedly embrace this view. But to answer your question, yeah, like if you're an idealist panpsychist, you deny the existence of physical brains. Like they are there, but they're not what you think they are. So the same way as what the illusionist would say. I don't think... To be honest, calling anyone's views this, like Chama said, is in his chapter calling people's views, the silliest claim that's ever been made isn't going to get us very far, but it certainly makes for a good read and an interesting debate.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, by the way, I can totally go with the panpsychist idealist view in, in the sense that, I mean, I'd love to I, hear that. Ph- phenomenologically speaking, right. <laughs> let's just, let's even use that cognosensory, uh, like a deprivation chamber, right? It, if you are stripped of, not stripped of all the senses, but say you're so in tune, so in the moment that uh, conceptions fall away, it's, it's just literally just the experience of being conscious, right? Then the things that sort of, this is very hard to sort of parse, by the way, but what I'm trying to say is, like, it, it seems that uh, this is something Sartre has said, and other people like that existence, that being sort of precedes essence, right? That, that you, you are conscious before You are this or that. Before I am Alan, I just am, right? And I'm having this sort of experience of of the world and everything that appears in the world is appearing within consciousness. So in the sense that my relationship, my interdependent relationship with the world is a relationship of mind interaction. Like it's made up of mind stuff, like like in that last chapter there. So it doesn't Mm. seem... Like it, it's definitely seems very reasonable to say that the world is made up of mind stuff, and there is no relationship. There, there is no relationship that doesn't exist that doesn't involve a mind um, internally and, in a sense, externally right. in terms of how you experience that relationship with the world. Now, I know there, there's something that you mentioned in that last chapter where where does the world go? Like, how does an apple maintain its uh, appliness when when nobody is there to see it? So that part, I have a little bit of trouble uh, parsing with the explanation that sort of follows from there uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the universe uh, being conscious and uh, maintaining the uh, characteristics of the apple. I'm not sure I quite understand yeah. that part so well, uh, but it definitely does make sense that there is some sort of relationship between mind and the world. Always, it's always that that kind of relationship, right? Well, There's can no- I can
2: I flip that on its head?
0: Yeah, that's great. Okay,
2: so what what we know, right, so about babies, right? So babies technically, you know, from kind of what psychology, developmental psychology and neuroscience tells us is that babies don't perceive a difference between like them and the rest of the world, right? So pretty much with the kind of an infant brain, right? Probably even a toddler brain too. There's a sort of connection that they feel like with the rest of the world around them, right? However, on the other side, right, we know that there's a distinction, right? So when we see a baby, we don't say, oh, that's me. We say, that's a baby, right? So, and we would say, because their brains aren't fully developed, Yet they can't actually, they don't have the sense perception or I guess the cognitive perception concepts of you and I, right? So, the way that we do, they kind of see the world all as one. And, like, when the person is hallucinated, right? They may have a psychedelic experience where they see the world as one and they're like, oh my God, like, you know, there's no ego, right? Ego disillusion, right? We would say the default uh, mode network is off, right? However, the observer would say, no, no, no! this person is just hallucinating. And no, 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 that's just the baby. That baby's brain hasn't developed yet to develop the concept of you and I. It only sees the world as one, right? So can we say that maybe it's possible that the baby and the person hallucinating are actually just misperceiving or misunderstanding reality? You can say that. Right. But
0: it's sort of when you start to make distinctions and separate this Mm -hmm. and that, that's sort of a feature of us just trying to sort of make sense of the world. But if you phenomenal, again, if you sort of break down, how does experience sort of begin like with even you just waking up or yep. just before you even say anything or create anything or think anything, there's a sort of a so-called space from which that stuff arises. Even Even, the, even that determination that this is a baby and this is, uh, this is somebody having a hallucinatory experience. Mm-hmm. So it's tough for me to sort of talk this through, but I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Jack? Yeah, there's again, there's,
1: there's loads of stuff there. I suppose the, the best place to, to start is to pick up where we sort of left off a moment ago, which is that for Descartes, right? He opens up the mind-body problem when he says, I'm this mind and there's that physical world outside of me. And there's a gap there. And then the physicalists get worried. that, like, well, how do we bring these together? And the, the panpsychists say, we can bring it together like this. Where rather than following Descartes, we could follow uh, Barclay, Bishop Barclay and say, well, there's no physical stuff at all. Let's not open up the gap to begin with. And let's just say that rather than there being a physical world, it's just ideas we said a moment ago. So for okay. Descartes, you know, how do I know that I'm not being deceived? How do I know that that the apple is not going to turn to an orange when I walk out the room? Ontological argument, everything's, uh, everything's great for God, like great for us if God exists, God's good. God would never systemically and systematically deceive us. He wouldn't keep tricking us. That's not what a, a good God would do. Well, Barclay says, well, let's get rid of, we can get rid of the mind-body problem and instead we can say that god just holds the ideas in place instead now that might not be palatable for everybody so what miri al-bihari suggests is that we replace god with this ocean of consciousness this uh, perspectiveless consciousness which is alive to itself and it's a very very hindu idea and i like how you you bring up the cognitive sensory deprivation tank or or chamber and when which it's very similar to a meditative experience that one might have, in which they realize that like everything is one. Like we all met that person with that white guy with dreadlocks, didn't we, was undergraduates or something? It was just like, mm-hmm. Fortunately, we never had to bump into them again. But maybe he was onto something. The point being is that everything is made up of of consciousness and it's perspectiveless. So when you take away all of my cognitive experiences and all of my sensory experiences the tank says, well, once you've stepped into the tank and it's stripped all those things away, the thought experiment says, you're still left with this empty consciousness. Like consciousness is still there. So you can make sense of, of consciousness being that, um, without consciousness, without contents, you might disagree with that point. And it's not a hill, which again, I, I, I want to die on, but I can see why someone might be skeptical of it. Now, The question then, which you started with, Alan, is how then can this ocean of consciousness make sure the oranges don't turn into apples, the apples turn into oranges when you leave the room? Well, this, this conscious field sees, right, in some sense, this apple or orange. It's watching it. So rather than God watching it, you've simply got this underlying conscious world looking at the apple watching the apple and the orange all the time so it doesn't change it's always alive in the mind of of some conscious thing so it holds them in place it's there this it's alive to itself i'm not sure again you might not think that uh sounds like too technically put but hopefully that gets the, the idea across
2: yeah here, no, here sure. here's yeah so the great conception of it but here's the question that i would have right so if the consciousness emerges from the single consciousness or let's say the hypothesis well you know the consciousness and somehow first of all there's no reason behind it which is kind of difficult right so there's no reason behind why this one consciousness would want to manifest these multitude of singular consciousnesses i guess consciousness i don't know how you would even say the multitude of consciousness right uh but okay but that's number one and number two is also why do brains then develop right so why do babies start out feeling like they're Meshed with the world again, like you know, they're part of some single unity here. That there is again distinction between you and I, but then they develop these distinctions and they start to see themselves, uh, you know, as individuals, right? So, is it more so likely that okay, well, it's because the brain is it develops right as a deeper and more complicated understanding of the world where it doesn't just see unity, where now it sees distinctions, or is it more likely that somehow as this consciousness emerges, other consciousness, uh, they're somehow like developing further and further individuation? And then again, the question is why, if that's the case.
1: Cool. Okay. No, not an easy question again, but like, right. I'll,
2: I'll have a stab at it. So I'm, I'm quite a big fan
1: of Schopenhauer and Bernardo Castro's work and reading of Schopenhauer. So I think that's a good way in of thinking about uh, one possible solution to that question. So for Schopenhauer, we've got this underlying world of, of consciousness, this big mind I spoke about a moment ago, and he describes that as the will. And the will Schopenhauer is blindly striving to see itself so why does it manifest itself in some in some way well they're all attempts at blindly getting to to be conscious of something to see something now that doesn't have any rhyme or reason it's just trying to do it that's the brute fact about the world I think any metaphysics is going to have that why question and 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 all of them are going to open up a a phd thesis and more on on each one so perhaps we can't go down there but that here's the answer that it's blindly striving to see itself and why do minds then come about like perspectives yours mine and alan's why are we all seeing the world well we're manifestations of this conscious will and with and in some experiences we get to look at the will itself we become alive to it and that's just a product of, of what it's trying to do. I mean, you might think that sounds too kooky and wacky, and I don't pretend that I, I, I that this view is um, without its problems for any moment. But in terms, you're asking here for an explanation, not just of how consciousness fits into our uh, into the world, but you're asking also like why is there a world to begin with, and why does it work like this? And right. I mean, that, that's above my pay grade, to be honest. And you
0: need to. Yeah, ask someone who's who's more qualified on such questions. I know that's fair, but uh, yeah, couldn't we just combine our explanations that we derive from you know our study of biology and the pipe panpsychist?
2: Oh no! Can I can I tell you why? <laughs> why? So okay, so when we actually, could I just build? Yeah, sure. Do quick? you think I'm ready? So, I'm ready. So, for example,
0: <laughs> when you ask that question, you know what answer came to my mind? Not okay. that I'm qualified at all, but sure, I, I would say that. uh I was thinking, okay, well, that's a feature of survival, right? Uh, that we uh, uh, b- become individuals, and that in order to uh, survive, it's it's very good for you know, for us to have a sort of um individualist uh, sort of perspective that we need to separate this and that. I uh, or just in general, just being uh, um, well, how should I put this? I, I just feel like it's an aspect of of survival for us to sort of develop these individual sort of personalities uh, or or character, you know, but maybe that's not a complete view, but... um... Fine, go into what you're saying. It's very hard to parse these ideas. (laughs) Okay,
2: so when we're talking about brain development in terms of evolution, right, there is a rhyme and reason, right? So even though there's no sort of God willing it to happen, right, the understanding is the reason why the human brain kind of develops in the way it does was number one, right, so there's a kind of lineage, right? So we can call this a little bit of, I guess, recapitulation, right, where sort of there was a time where sort of animals, mammals, you know, whatever, uh, they kind of evolved brains in their own kind of distinct ways because, you know, obviously they help them survive, they help them reproduce, right? And now the argument here is, well, the reason why it takes brains so long to develop, right, in a sense is because it's sort of like a, a, a birth is uh, birth and child development is like microevolution because it follows the blueprint of macroevolution, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense, right? Again, it's just, it's, it's reasonable. It's right, right. It, reasonable. It's ways for yeah. the organism to survive, right? And the organism is pretty much a copycat, right? It sort of copies what comes before it. But again, when we talk about this world consciousness, there's really not a reason for it. I still don't understand why this universal consciousness would manifest these multitudes of minds and, you know, minds in different, first of all, we can't, I don't even really know what a bird mind can do for this universal consciousness. Let's say that. So why would it manifest these minds? What's the reason for it? Oh,
0: well, okay. So here's, so I have, I have a few, and by the way, of course we should let Jack respond <laughs> here, but here's my conception of it, of course, which is just that it so who so we're we're a type of being that likes to ask why and what's the reason for this yes. and what's the purpose for this in terms of our understanding right of the goings-on of okay oh,
2: i'm sorry can i just i because i need to dis- just let me be clear about sure. this so when i say why i actually technically mean how that's actually my fault my fault so there is no why to evolution right because there's no purpose to it per se right when we look at how we find the reasons and the kind of causes right that's All right well, saying. so
0: uh, back to what I wanted to say before then then should uh, couldn't we just use these working theories like uh, in terms of so biology right and and physical science uh, it's actually it's done us quite well like right it's very reliable in terms of the discoveries sure. that we've made technology that's that's come from it, right? Um, I still would say that it's incredibly reasonable to say that the world is made up of Mind stuff, and that your entire interaction of the world is involves mind, right? But in terms of that aspect of it, I, I'm just trying to sort of
2: no, and I'm only smiling because if I start getting into this hole with him, you're not going to be able to talk anymore. So I'm not going <laughs> to. Right, I will, will see speaking. Sorry, Jack, go ahead. Uh, it's hard for me to. No, no, no. So
1: I think it's an important question to ask, but I, I suppose there's lots of stories you could tell about why it happens in terms of the you could just say well it's exactly the same as what you thought was the physicalist account but what you think is physical just doesn't turn out to be physical and i don't see what the major problems would be there you could be a hindu like they've got a a worldview which is all connected together and has its big narrative and story and all the whys are and flicked off at the end on the eyes are dotted at the top um so you could you could tell a a hindu story about why there's that the world exists on this big plane of of consciousness. You might be a pantheist. You might think that God is omnipresent and that he is a person with a conscious mind. So there are lots of, of stories you could you could tell in terms of how that plays out on a wider metaphysical scale. But the conversation about evolution, I think, is a more interesting one that perhaps listeners who aren't particularly like blown away by the prospect of idealist panpsychism, they might say, Yeah, consciousness is just something that evolves to help us survive. I think one interesting way in here is what Susan Blackmore talks about in the second chapter of the book, where I think she borrows this from David Chalmers from his book, The Conscious Mind, where you can imagine these creatures in our evolutionary past, let's say 150, 200,000 years ago, where we had some human beings who are are conchies, normal humans like uh, like us three, who all have presumably conscious minds. And then you've got zombies, these imitation men, these things that are exactly like us, but don't have an inner world of experience. And Blackmore says, well, you might think, right, that evolution would have a reason for favoring the conchies over the zombies, but that doesn't seem obvious to her. She thinks because their behavior and everything they do is completely the same, physically indistinguishable, that the conchies have no evolutionary advantage over the, over the um, zombies. Mm. So I think that's a, a good way to start thinking about it. Now, people like David Chalmers say it you know, perhaps it collapses wave functions. Uh, Evolution is not going to do all of the work for us. People like Pat Churchland say it might be important for developing language. Uh, Massimo says Well, it helps us run mental simulations of possible outcomes. And that seems like it would be evolutionarily beneficial. I think that latter one's probably my favorite out of all three. I can see how that might play out. So, yeah, but that still doesn't answer the question, though. Even if you identify why it benefits us evolutionarily, then you still need some kind of explanation for how that we've got the why there. Why is it there? But how is it? That soggy gray matter gives rise to vivid technical and experience. Why does it feel like anything? It's like trying to get ethics from rhubarb, right? It says uh Sell." So you need something, say, people like Galen Strawson to start working with. He he runs the argument against itself and says, just as to develop an eye or a brain or a nose, you need some kind of physical matter to get started with. You need some building blocks so too you need that for conscious minds. So there must be some kind of rudimentary consciousness at the foundation of our ontology to make sense
0: of how these minds could come about in the first place. Yeah, so... And no go for i was going to mention strong emergence and weak emergence but okay well, okay because
2: i'm going to go a little bit deeper now okay okay? okay so i'm gonna invoke uh occam's razor here and i'm also going to invoke uh, a book by uh, so he was in uh, so he, i'm going to invoke the book it's called reincarnation by manly palmer hall so i know a lot of people don't know who he was he was like uh i guess if you're into like conspiracy stuff and occult stuff he's probably one of the most famous like freemasons to have ever lived right he wrote god knows how many books so he wrote this really great book on reincarnation, like million years ago, probably I think in the 40s. It's called like reincarnation, like cycle of rebirth or something along those lines, right? So and as so, it's a brilliant book, by the way. So this book is absolutely, so Manly Palmer Hall is a complete autodidact, never went to school, grew up in the slums of Canada, God knows where, found his way into the US, literally became a Freemason, became a popular writer, kind of the works, just really crazy story. So Manly Palmer Hall wrote this book on reincarnation as a way to kind of explain what the Hindu version slash Freemasonic version of reincarnation is, right? So, and this is why I'm invoking Occam's Razor, right? So Manley Palmer Hall, as brilliant as he was, had an incredibly complex understanding of the world, right? So this is from my vague memory of the book. It's obviously not going to be precise, but I'm going to do my best. Mm-hmm. So he pretty much said that here's this world consciousness, right? Again, we're going back to uh, psychic idealism. So here's this world consciousness, and the consciousness tries to learn about itself like through these uh, multitudes of consciousness, right? To you, right. me, you know, Jack, whomever, right? So, but the point is, he says, he says, there's no actual afterlife, right? So he says, don't, don't be egoist right don't believe that your soul survives their death right he says there's a distinction between the soul and the spirit so the spirit is actually this universal consciousness which is when it's done with you it's done with you right and the soul actually dies so Manley palmer hall says like even though there's this fundamental underlying consciousness right it's sort of like it's using you to learn more about itself and to kind of manifest these deeper parts of itself that it couldn't have known otherwise right but however once you die once the soul and the brain is extinguished right? you are gone forever right you go back into the kind of ultimate reality into the brahman right so here's why I think Occam's razor is pertinent right can't we just say that people just die that there is no fundamental underlying spirit that's using any of us for anything that literally we are born and then we die and then that's it because what he's saying is that the evidence is pretty much the same right the evidence is yes you the evidence says that your body dies and you are absolutely right that's exactly what happens but it's also a little bit deeper because some some sort of energy that you can't see it goes back into the spirit yada 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 very complicated right so somehow or other you go back into the spirit the spirit learns from you it takes this information then it manifests further spirit right very complicated right but really if we're just dying anyway can't we just say that there is no fundamental spirit and we probably just die? you can say it but you don't know it no but uh, that's what i'm saying occam's razor right occam's razor says the evidence right these are both very explanatory positions right both of them right both of them explain the same evidence and the evidence let's say is you and i die right we can see it we can feel it we can even smell it right we see death in front of us however and manly palmer hall's complicated understanding is the death is it's really a death however some part of you some energy or whatever goes back into the world consciousness again it's using we don't know if that's true no but but i also but what i'm saying but right but why i'm saying is this is like the rule of thumb right i would invoke occam's razor and i would say he's over complicating the matter because i think we could just probably say here's the evidence that this thing dies and it probably just dies and nothing there's nothing else deeper than that right that's what i'm saying i don't know what do you what do you think jack
1: yeah i think it's quite close to a schopenhauerian view which we're talking about a moment ago first of all but then you've added this extra layer which is a, a, a type of afterlife now if you were a, a hindu of this type you'd probably be a panentheist the panentheist holds that let's in this case the way we're describing it is that the world is all conscious and then there's this extra layer which isn't a part of what we consider to be the world which is in this sense brahman which when we die our atman i.e soul will become a part of, of brahman unified with brahman once again if we live the kind of life which the hindu wants us to then we won't be reincarnated Right. we could say a million things about that right and that mm-hmm. the problems or the benefits of such a view the idealist panpsychus, as described in the book obviously doesn't have to embrace that they can just say as you say Leon, yeah we just die and maybe that is simpler for them than telling a tale of what happens once these perspectives die like once they these perspectives burn out right as perhaps a, the buddhist might describe it so i don't think it's a problem necessarily For solving the hard problem of consciousness. But then again, when you're invoking Occam's razor in this way, maybe you wield it a little bit too readily and and cut yourself in doing so. Because what we want to ask, first of all, is what is it to be a conscious being? So when you ask that question, if you end up believing something kooky like a non physical soul, like nearly 90% of the planet do. Then you've got a good reason for thinking that that thing cannot be destroyed. It goes back to Socrates and Plato and the tale of the cloak maker and the cloak wearer. right? We, that It doesn't seem like the soul is the kind of thing that can be destroyed or decay in the same way that physical stuff does. And so if it can't decay and it can't be destroyed like that, if it, it's non-physical after all, if it's eternal, then where does it go? So I suppose First of all, we need to answer the question of what it is to be conscious and what constitutes consciousness. And then we can say, well, would it be simpler not to tell a story and just say these kind of things, just wander around or, or like maybe they, they die with the body. It's, it's uh, maybe they can't survive without being attached to, to a brain. And it's just it's a kind of weird energy, I suppose. Yeah. To answer the question shortly, it
2: depends on what you think consciousness is. Mm-hmm. Yo, I'm just—is is it okay? Can you say more about that? Because I'm not sure I get it.
1: So, if your your question is, wouldn't it be simpler just to say that when we die, we die? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And I say, yeah, but you haven't told me what consciousness is yet. Okay. So, if you think consciousness is a soul, then you need to tell me what happens to the soul after the body dies. Gotcha. If you think that consciousness is just a physical trick of the brain then, yeah, once the brain decays, there is no illusion of consciousness. So it depends on what our theory is about what consciousness is, first of all. And The overwhelming majority of people on the planet do think that the soul or an Atman or something like that does exist. So they do owe us some kind of story. Now, it, so Occam's razor, I don't see as as coming in there. Maybe the story could be less extravagant um, yeah. and, and much uh, simpler and, and much more reasonable. And Occam's razor can come in there. But yeah in short does that answer your question now that it depends on what we yeah, consciousness is
2: yeah no we'll go ahead you were going to say something
0: well one thing I, I really loved in the book is sort of philip goff's um uh sort of the way he outlined galileo's error right uh and so i, I won't explain as I, I guess i'll ask you to explain it probably in a moment or so but one thing that i found interesting is that he said that physical science although it's led to so many great things in terms of the technology that it spawned and, and advances for us, um, that there may be another kind of science out there that we're not quite uh, aware of that may lead mm-hmm. to a better understanding of consciousness, a sort of non-physical science, not in the sense of a social science, but maybe even something I cannot even conceive of. No one and, can. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, is it possible you could speak a little bit on that? Maybe I'm not dis- I'm not explaining it perfectly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'll give it a go. I, I, I'm a big fan of of Goff's work myself, and I think he does do a great job of just setting up the problem first of all. Right when Aristotle was kicking about and everyone was far, following his metaphysics, the Redness was actually on the surface of the tomato. The spiciness was actually in the paprika, to so borrow Goff's example. And then Galileo strips the world of all these properties and leaves us with the purely mathematical objective ones, these, these primary qualities or properties. So science now is in the language of mathematics. And as he rightly points out, you can't capture like the taste and the color of those things in the form of equations, the different kinds of things. And so what he then says is, well, Science itself just explains what things do and not what they are. What's the inner essence and nature of these things? And he says, well, we've got this thing called consciousness. We don't know where to put it. And we have this hole within our theory of the the ground theory of the world. And we can plug that hole. We can color it in with consciousness and it will fit together. The question you're asking is what would a science of consciousness look like? And I think that's a really interesting question because that runs through the book as well with like uh, Michelle Montague talking about auto phenomenology. So she thinks just by reflecting on the nature of your experience, you can learn things about consciousness. So you can learn that there's something it's like to fear being on a flight or making two plus two equal four. And that's different to just the sensory. And that is a type of science, right? If we, if we do it systematically now, it's not going to look like the science, which we're used to. It's not going to look like physical science in that it's not going to be able to be captured in these equations. But to use an example of like people who drink wine and love drinking wine or love like craft ale, they can give us pretty rich descriptions of these experiences. And so you might think that capturing this big phenomenological account or what the nature of consciousness is will involve loads of this descriptive work. but Also, people like Uh, Daniel Dennett's, he's not very happy with auto phenomenology. And so he gives us hetero phenomenology, which sounds uh, even worse, doesn't it? But he says, (laughs) well, what you need to do is get people to report their accounts and then check objectively whether they can actually be experiencing that thing. Personally, I don't know what that looks like and how that plays out, but you can certainly see how, um, how information about what people think they're experiencing, correlating it to brain states, et cetera, could make progress with what the nature of consciousness is like. But it's not going to be, um, it, it, we're not going to be like testing souls in machines and plugging people into cognitive sensory deprivation tanks and
2: things like that. It'll <laughs> most likely be descriptions of people's inner worlds. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just going into these thought experiments, uh, you know, what makes it so hard for me to kind of accept them as, as so to, you know, take them too seriously or seemingly, or take them as something that's plausible. Like, I mean, look, cognitive, cognitive, sensory deprivation, right? I mean, look again, unless you're on some sort of hallucinogen, that's probably not going to happen to you. Or unless you're some sort of like expert level monk, I think maybe, and even still we can say, we don't really even know what that is or what that feels like. And if really it is a stripping of consciousness or maybe something else, Because most of us have never experienced it. And then on top of that, with the zombie experiment and Mary the scientist, right? These, I'm sorry, Mary the neuroscientist, right? These are all like, I mean, they're clever examples, but they're also so far away removed from reality. I would say one
0: thing Mm -hmm. Mary the scientist and the zombie examples, 100%. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I I feel like uh, things along the lines of meditation or a deprivation chamber or uh, even hallucinogens, these are things that are actually, even if you're what you're postulating is most people don't have access to it or they're not, experiencing but can I just that? say
2: the interpretation ex- on these hallucinations is that, like, yes, I felt like egolessness, right? But how do we know that that's what it actually is? Fair, fair, uh, in a way. Uh, I mean, it,
0: it dep- I guess you just have to work on your definitions of what ego is and. E- egolessness is but then yeah fair enough i, I guess you wouldn't know if you're being ego yeah because my
2: my thing is i can't even envision that like a consciousness well, stripped of everything have I, you have you
0: tried a sensory deprivation chamber before no <laughs> that so that's so what i want all i'm saying is mm-hmm. there are certain experiences that are accessible to us mm-hmm. that will give credence to the these reasonable uh, conceptions these other reasonable conceptions of uh consciousness mm-hmm. not saying that it proves them because i'm i'm with uh michelle uh, montague on on the idea that yes mm. it's good to sh- sort of have all these different working theories available and maybe assign a probability to them that, that that's actually cool that's kind of how i like to do things too yeah. in terms of like I'm, i don't like to be married to any particular viewpoint but i do like seeing through the lens of that viewpoint to see it uh mm uh use or effectiveness or, or what effect it has for me yeah. for instance especially like at the end of the book when you uh when you imagine what it would be like to be what that everything is conscious yeah. it, it, it's it's actually so it's not quite easy to do <laughs> i'm not uh, even close no 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 but i'll say <laughs> this no no because when when you're reading and you try to stop and do it right. i actually in in brief moments can sort of oscillate, not oscillate yeah uh, no uh, vacillate vacillate <laughs> between uh that sort of uh, experience and then me going back to reading the book because I, it's not quite easy to maintain that sort of experience of the world but you mm. could actually
2: it's very interesting is yeah. what i, I mean think. i guess i would just want to know what that feels like yeah
1: alan were you saying at the start though you thought you agreed with leon with saying that married the neuroscientists and zombies yeah i'm with you there Leon like i they're, they're not useful. But then you went on to say that the cognitive sensory deprivation tank gives you at least a way of thinking about the problem. <laughs> and on that criteria, like it's really hard to do. It might be like, hey, who's, we're not going to be doing it, right? But the point is to, if the world is as you say it is, then, then maybe you've got this problem. So the, the zombie thought experiment or the imitation man and the uh, married the neuroscientist, they simply ask from the physical facts alone, can we deduce consciousness can we does mary learn something new or if we took a physical person does consciousness necessarily follow from those properties alone and so yeah like they they sound kooky they sound wacky and perhaps it's uh, not great marketing for philosophers who want to be considered like doing hard science and hence why perhaps they they want to rally against it but they certainly help us with getting people hooked and interested in the problem or giving us some kind of apparatus to to, to play with and explain to
0: them right Oh yeah no 100% uh, the reason why I started that with I'm with you is in the sense that I just sort of wanted to outline that that at least that like a sensory deprivation experience or meditation apart from uh, the thought experiment aspect of it that, that is something that you could um, act that is accessible to you it's not necessarily this thing that most people, may not have uh access to in order to but
2: i'm well my point is that it's not accessible to you to that degree right where you're completely stripped of everything but pure consciousness whatever pure consciousness even is. here
0: here's another thing i would say to that Mm -hmm.
2: which is are you saying
0: that because you you in your conception you think you have to be a monk or a special person. Oh, I'm honestly just
2: to. being kind. I'm saying, okay, I'm leaving some openings for these possibilities. I actually don't even think that monks experience pure con what is pure. Con- how do we even conceptualize well, pure how about consciousness? This? How about this? Mm-hmm. Somebody is somebody who may
0: have had that experience in human history maybe has pointed. No, no, no. Let me put it this way. Okay. I'm not saying that they that they had ex- exactly what you would call pure consciousness. Whatever, I'm right. following you. I'm right. with you. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. But then there are people who have pointed to having experienced this uh, sort of experience of egolessness. Do you think that Mm -hmm. that is not accessible uh, to you, that you have to be some kind of doing like a special person in order to experience that? experience that they're <laughs> pointing to i had always said experience five times there right but yeah. well,
2: here, here okay here's here, and i think by the way maybe it's even important to distinguish between if there is a difference between pure consciousness and egolessness right so i wonder if it's actually the same thing so again going back into the conception of the default mode network right i guess i can see how maybe one person in some sort of a hallucinatory experience feels like they're connected to the entire world maybe okay but is that pure conscious because you still have sensors i mean you're still still sensing that you're a part of the world fair enough but
0: okay so let's it's fine we don't have to call it pure consciousness Mm -hmm. but let's just say that these people are pointing to an experience that is accessible to people is is like could you could you conceive that maybe the people who are having that experience that they call pure consciousness whether it is or not right might reason that might come to conceive of like at least like panpsychist related views of of the of the world. Oh like oh
2: you're asking if in my mind I could see that as support for the perspective?
0: No that's that's why not why, but that could be like one of the underpinnings for why somebody might conceive of Oh, 100%. Of that. Like th- oh, yeah. There's a reasoning Yeah, 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 no,
2: like oh yeah. Like it's reasonable. Oh, by like, the way, yeah, so just yeah. to be clear, I don't think the panpsychist uh, perspective is absurd. It's not that I think it's silly or anything ah. like that, right, right. So just to be clear, it's not that I think it's absurd. Um, It's just that my understanding of it, it just doesn't seem to fit with the evidence. That's it. So, I mean, look, I guess you can conceive that as absurd. So uh, I just want to be clear. So it's a brilliant view based on particular experiences that yes, people have had over millennia. I do not mm. discredit that, right? However, as the evidence as we normally would see it on sober minds, it just doesn't fit with it from my conception of it. Mm-hmm. What evidence he you, you thinking of? Well, well, so pretty much the material world, right? And experimentation. So my question is, how does, how is that like, okay, you know, I don't want to go back to this because I know he kind of said this and people gave him a little bit of shit on it. When Philip Goff was on the Joe Rogan podcast, Rogan kept asking him, like, how is the rock conscious, right? And this wasn't the question that Philip Goff could answer. So that's what I mean about the evidence, right? So if we're looking at the evidence, we're looking at this coffee cup, you know, whatever else, right? This is all evidence for a material universe, right? rock, right? The rock Mm. indicates in some way that the material universe is something that we're kind of enveloped in. But how would this be evidence for just pure consciousness? That I can't, I just, I can't understand that. So the first
1: thing to say is that I appreciate Alan, you you waving the flag for the cognitive sensory (laughs) deprivation tank is something we should develop. I'm, I'm all for it as well and maybe we can convince Leon if we, if we manage to get one of these tanks and we scrap them in, I think that's the <laughs> only reason we moved on such a point, is that it's not, like, it's an extra bit of evidence, I suppose. I think you can both agree on this point, right? Leon says, I just don't, I just can't imagine it. And you say, well, here's here's a helpful way to think about it. And you might think, well, that's not good enough for me, right? I still, mm. that, that thought experiment isn't going to convince me that that's possible but it's just an extra bit of evidence really it's just saying is this can you conceive of this being possible whereas the elegance or the persuasiveness of what we consider idealist panpsychism isn't that oh you have a mystical experience turns out the world is just consciousness there we go it doesn't start from there it starts off with well all of these other views can't explain consciousness and if we want to close the mind-body gap how about we don't get rid of mind like the illusionists do but we get rid of body and we'll build up from there mm. so Leon, you uh, I, I haven't seen the the joe rogan goff interview so i'm not sure exactly how how that plays out but i've, I've mischaracterized goff's view myself several times and i think last time mischaracterized mischar- that he emailed me like you're liable like this is dr- like <laughs> stop doing this And i was like he's only kidding of course but <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm always hesitant to talk about it. but yeah, for golf, like that's just not—it's not, it's not a, a subjective experience. It doesn't—it um, doesn't have the things necessary for for being unified mind in the same way, like as rivers and, and things like that do. Plant life, maybe, but it just—it just doesn't fall into that category. It does like have like the individual physical, microphysical things. At the most fundamental level, there is something it's like to be them. Although so far alienated, perhaps we we can't conceptualize it, but it, they haven't there's no combination yet when it comes to rocks perhaps is a it's a good way of putting it so yeah i suppose the the evidence which we're talking about here is just well we're trying to solve the problem how do we avoid all the problems the other views face well here's one possible solution what problems does that face yeah as you say whether or not it's possible for the world just to be mind stuff but i'm not sure again what this evidence looks like for you say physical science shows us like rocks and is it G. more who does the hand thing he's like "Where's the evidence for the physical world it's like well, look at my hand right? <laughs> that's 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 kind of the example we will out for first years to be like look how silly this guy is right we don't uh we we that for for barclay or for the hindu it's an illusion Right, In the same way, like earlier on, Leon, you were saying, well, the the illusionists, you were giving us a description of their view. And like I say, I I see that as well as a promising solution to the problem. It's just not what you think it is, the mind. And so I think the illusionist, sorry, the idealist panpsychist can say something similar about what we think of as to be physical reality. Yes, it seems like there's a physical world. And I don't deny that you have an experience of what you think is the physical world. But actually, in reality, it's not that.
2: Well, okay, so I'm going to push this a little bit further, then, right? Because I actually subscribe to more of an illusionist perspective. Um, So the reason why I would say that is because if we're looking at, um, okay, so let's say I do subscribe to some version of illusionism. I think Mm. that there's a high probability that based on what we know on evolution, that consciousness evolved to kind of simplify the world around us in order for us to survive, right? Simplify the information, the inputs, right? The inputs that we take in. Uh, So, yeah, whatever, the informative inputs, whatever you want to call it. So, but then on top of that, right, what we know from, uh, you know, and obviously I'm nowhere near an expert. In this, but what we know about, like, you know, quantum mechanics and what we know about, uh let's say, you know, kind of uh, what we see in terms of, like, how photons, you know, hit the retina and then we create a visual, an image in the visual cortex. And then obviously how sound waves are then essentially kind of converted into hearing, right? So, why I think the illusionists are probably right is because you see from the experimental evidence, right, that there is a slightly, well, not even slightly, it seems like a completely different world out there than what we see in here, right? And that's obviously what Keith stated on our show, uh, you know know, he pointed this out way more eloquently than I will. Um, so the idea there is that essentially, you know, uh, atoms are kind of like mostly empty space, right? We kind of see the way that they sort of interact with one another. Seems like in somehow, in some way, they combine in our heads to create this image that, you know, we see in front of us. And I would probably argue that, yes, that's because that's the way evolution shaped us, because it's going to be really hard for us to you know distinguish our kind of surroundings if we're, all we're seeing are just a bunch of atoms. So, but again, it just seems like from what we're seeing from, you know, from quantum mechanics and from the evidence on atomic particles, is it's actually our brains that's interpreting what the outside world is giving us, right? But from the panpsychist view, the understanding is, well, there is no outside world, right? It's just pure consciousness. And again, I don't see what the evidence of that could be outside of, well, you know, well, we can't explain it from a dualist perspective, um, you know, and then the materialist can't tell us how, you know, consciousness is formed. So therefore, this seems like the best case scenario, or the best explanation possible. I just don't think that that's true, again, because there's this understanding here that, okay, there is a sort of realm of particles and then we know that our brain this is the thing that we can't explain how our brain translates the information that we're getting from the outside world into the images sights sounds etc right that's the thing that we can't answer but again if you're looking at the evidence and that, of course you can always say well that's just an illusion too but then i'm like okay how many illusions do we have right
1: mm-hmm. yeah okay so two things uh, first of all again just draw the distinction you, you say panpsychists. just say that. No, there's only mindset for again we're talking here just about purely idealist panpsychism. okay right, right. for someone mm-hmm. like Goff and Strawson they they don't deny the fact there's a physical world as I described okay. it earlier they think they can eat the cake and have it too now I'm not ever sure and I follow Goff on this of thinking about what physical evidence and this is a point we keep going back to what physical evidence gives us reason to doubt the reality of consciousness I think he gives us he says in the book it's like thinking that uh, astrology could give you a reason to doubt the existence of telescopes. You need telescopes to do astrology. Astrology, astronomy, astronomy, astronomy. astronomy. You're definitely not astrology. Yeah. He <laughs> would hate you for that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I'll get another astrologer. email. Yeah, yeah. You were telling the season of the moment guys that I like astrology. Like, <laughs> an astrologer. <you>
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Goff is an astrologer. Breaking news. I
1: read my star sign for today. Philip Goff is just around the corner. Oh man. <laughs> So doing astronomy with the telescope, I've got no reason to doubt telescopes, and I need consciousness to do science. And science doesn't give me a reason to doubt the apparatus which I use to go about and do the science. So there's I, think that's where I'll settle on the defense of panpsychism. I don't see. Yeah, I, I think the evolutionary tale you just told as well is a perhaps a compelling one. The illusionist obviously has a lot of questions to answer for the meta problem of consciousness as to why we say and think all the things that we do about consciousness. And there's a big yeah. research project to go on there. But yeah, they've they've got an opportunity to make progress with it and and that research should should obviously be done. But I'm still not sure about what this I think it's the start. Did we talk about the starting point earlier on? Again, whether or not you build from consciousness being unshakable and work outwards, or whether you start with the physical world as it I am, therefore, I think, or I think, therefore, I am, and and Literally. I think you and I, uh, Leon, in my uh, Socratic defense of panpsychism, are going to disagree on that point, and I uh, I think we need to reconfigure our epistemologies if we're going to get any make any progress with it. I hear you. That's fair.
2: Okay, and then so one of the we final can do that questions. Do you like. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: are
1: you shying I,
2: away, Leon? Come no, on. No, I'm let's, down. Let's I, do listen, I, I thought there was a timer on this. Go ahead. Please <laughs> no, I already, I'm already Okay, So one of the uh, final questions before we wrap up. So I think both Alan and I would both obviously agree that we love this book, right? There's so much here just in terms of like, even the perspectives that like I, or obviously Alan would disagree with, we get a lot out of them, right? So what would you say is, you know, if we kind of look at this sort of subject broadly and we look at the book specifically, why do you mm-hmm. think it would be important for somebody to think about these things, right? Because, you know, maybe the person uh, who works like the nine to five, you know, who just, you know, kind of is getting through the days wondering like, yeah, why why should I care about consciousness what does this do for me
1: yeah okay a really good question and one it's always important to, to come back to the first chapter of the book written by Gregory Miller is why we should care about it at all and I think that's always a good place to to start with an issue like this or as we are finishing up on it right the so the people who aren't interested in it have already tuned out so, <laughs> so this is, I'm we'll make some edits acquire. no I'm kidding yeah. so, you can you might think that it's just uh, the only important thing is for the sake of itself or understanding uh, big theory of reality and I think that's a good enough motivation for most people but the book is obviously aimed at the general public and I think it does have some important features to it so in the myth of Sisyphus Albert Camus asks us well he tells us that the most fundamental philosophical question is whether or not I should top myself or carry on living and He obviously uh, makes the latter decision because he only continues on with his essay. And we're glad that he does because it's a very good one at that. But Mm. you might think that there's an even more fundamental question. Like within that question, is life worth living? Life, what is it to be alive? And conscious experience obviously plays a huge part in that. Like, What is it for you to be alive? What's the nature of your world? Are you the only conscious thing? What about the your family members and loved ones? Is the outside world real? Like these are. Uh, what about the non-human animals that end up on my dinner plate? Are they conscious creatures? Should they be considered morally valuable? David Chalmers in the third chapter talks about uh, the distinction between what he calls Vulcans, i.e. Uh, creatures which are conscious but have no positive or negative conscious experiences, so they don't feel happiness, uh, sadness. Uh, they'd have no uh, pain or suffering. And he says it would be monstrous for not to consider these entities within a, as ethical subjects in their own right. So typically the animal rights movement, for example, think, in the along with the utilitarians, that what matters is suffering. Like, not whether they can talk or you know, do podcasts and write books, but can they suffer? I think Bentham basically put it like that. And the, so the question of, of consciousness is, but the everyday person what is the nature of your whole world right because if you weren't conscious then you wouldn't have a world so for those who are interested as so many of us are about questions how we fit in with the universe like are we like the universe are we at home here should we be alienated from it how should we be treating it these are these are important questions that lie at the heart of like we spoke about our understanding of like god a few times here with hinduism like so many of people in the world are religious. Like they, they care about this question. Like if the world is one big global mind, they have to account for that within their theory of, of God. And that could have all sorts of implications. And as I mentioned with moral value and, and stuff as well, like we consider consciousness to be a valuable property. We typically think that it's, it's worse to kill a conscious thing than it is to kill a, a non-conscious thing. We don't consider them on the same plane. So if you think about the question of consciousness, immediately your entire world may become more valuable when you think about the implications of some of these views. And I don't know, for, for anyone who's had like a, think about Christians who have these conversion experiences and the whole world changes for them. Or when you have, we've all had those experiences in our life where we see the whole world through a new lens. And what a better way than to study the lens itself to give you some, some, uh, some newfound love and appreciation
2: of the world. Jack Symes, that was excellent, man. Wow, the time like legit flew by. So excellent! This yeah. is like literally
0: one of my favorite parts. Yeah, guess I, I thought the la- the uh, Angus Fletcher was my favorite. I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely tired. Yeah. All right, now final <laughs> questions for Jack before we wrap up. So I did want to address the Adam Sandler thing. Oh God! I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm yeah, good. what's your beef with Jack, huh? <laughs> no, no, no.
1: You, you, The amount of people that have asked me that. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm surprised that everybody like is defending Adam Sandler all of a sudden I don't think anyone okay here's the thing with Adam Sandler what it's made me realize is that either the zombie hypothesis is true and everyone's pretending to like Adam Sandler movies and they don't actually have them in the world of experiences or it means they should buy the book because they haven't thought about their conscious experiences enough and they would realize that it's not a positive one when they See his movies. Do you, do you think? Can you name any good
2: movie that Adam? Sandler's? Oh, I have Billy Madison. One of my favorite. What's well, some one of my favorites, maybe, you know, like but Bill definitely Madison one of my. Yeah, one of my favorite comics. He's like, that's not quality. Oh, well, yeah, exactly yeah, a quality movie. Nice yeah, I think. Time. Yeah, I think I've seen that movie a million times. It? Wait, wait. Yeah. I have. I have one example.
0: Maybe it's still. It's not. It's not the diamond one or whatever that was dramatic. Uh, it was uh, uh click. Click was a good click one. Click was quick. Uh, oh no, he's like, no, I was <laughs> liking these guys,
2: <laughs> and he's. Clint. Oh my god. <laughs> Click was a good clip. I'll say, all right,
0: how about this? I'll say this one part. I got a little bit emotional when he was dying and his son was like, no, dad, and where'd the time go? And so maybe that part got hit me emotionally, but I suppose if I really did rewatch the movie, it would be like, okay, this no, I would stand by here. stand your no, ground. You I like, like Jack. You like I like and Jack. Listen, and Maybe I think he's right. <laughs> I, I actually saw
2: Big Daddy when it first came out. I thought Big Daddy was like a, as far as the comedy goes, Big Daddy was exceptional, man. That whole thing or you were kid child. Kid,
0: You were a child. No,
2: I just saw Big Daddy like 3 months ago. Oh yeah! I just rewatched it. I love that movie, especially when he calls himself Frankenstein. Come on, man, that's brilliant! It's brilliant! The kid calls himself Frankenstein, and they're like, "Yeah, you're Frankenstein now." yeah i think
1: we've it, it's a difference of <laughs> i don't there's lots of differences here i thought we're all get a, yeah like we'll get along wonderfully and, <laughs> and i was about to say it's been a really nice time speaking <laughs> to you both. but, but, but we've last talked about some interesting ideas and you seem like very reasonable people
2: <laughs> no 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 yeah, I actually love,
0: I, I like i like this exchange anyway for the laughs you know as far as that yeah goes. and
2: we'll get credit yeah. with adam sandler for defending that for defending him so that's cool <laughs> 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 all
0: oh, right okay, Alex, yeah, so uh, fi- final questions for jack before we wrap up yes uh so if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you?
1: I recommend, well, first of all, picking up a copy of <laughs> Perfect timer. on Consciousness. Wow. Go to TalkingAboutPhilosophy.com. It's the best book you will ever buy in your life or your money back. Philosophers <laughs> on Consciousness. Uh, that only, that all money back only lasts for whatever the returns policy is as governed by your government. Uh, I think it's 14 days <laughs> something in the um. Yeah. Where else can you go? You can go to at the Pan cast on Twitter or follow us on Facebook or listen to the Pansai cast uh, available on all major um, streaming platforms. I wouldn't follow me on like social media. I'm, you know, I, I'm- yeah, follow Adam Sandler instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and just... In general, stop listening to Seize the Moment podcast. <laughs> that's if, what you get. You, that's <laughs> what you get. If you want I was telling uh, you, don't
0: poke the bear. <laughs> on I don't know with you. But yeah, if, yeah. if
1: you want good movie journalism, <laughs> then listen to the band podcast If you want good philosophical discussions, then listen to seize the moment. The decision is is yours. Thank
2: you. I love that. Thank you. All right, Jack. Thank you so much for coming thank on, for man. Coming this was on, excellent. It's
1: absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Talk to you thank soon, you. man.
0: All right. First of all, yo, yeah, well, that was awesome. Really fun. Yeah. All right. So everybody, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. And thank you so much for watching. See you next time.